LRT Media presents The Speckled Band. I appreciate you taking this little trip with me, Watson. Are you sure you can spare the weekend? I can, Holmes. I was going to refuse, but Mary found out about your offer and insisted I go along. Even in her own distress, she worries about me and thought the time away would do me good. (sighs) Watson, when you first left Baker Street for the bonds of matrimony, I felt you were making a grave mistake. But I see now what you saw then. Mrs. Watson is a woman of great character and humanity. That she is, Holmes. A fine woman and an irreplaceable companion. You've been to multiple physicians. Indeed, they are agreed that it is only a matter of time. Weeks, months, no one can be sure. Watson... You know that I place intelligence above all other qualities. I hold science and man's understanding of the natural world in high esteem. But at times like these, I am reduced to the same helpless wreck of bone and blood as any other mammal. Oh, the bloody inadequacy! One day, Watson, we shall conquer these plagues that visit upon us. I only regret that it will not come soon enough. Indeed, Holmes. Thank you, old friend. As strange as it may seem, I do find your anger comforting. Of course, yes. Ah, but we approach the manor house now. A dreary-looking place, Holmes, and it seems to have grown drearier since I was last here. And that is exactly why I wished you to come along. Your presence at the unfortunate inquest two years ago might lend valuable insight on today's interview. And... Who are we here to see? A young lady by the name of Helen Stoner. I received a message by special delivery, requesting that I visit the estate for a private consultation. It's not like you to travel on command, Holmes. No, but the young lady was quite persuasive. Uh, You mean she offered you a good deal of money? Well, there was a generous compensation. But more importantly, Miss Stoner made it clear that she did not feel safe leaving the estate did not feel safe. Why ever not? She had been instructed not to, Watson. But now we've arrived, let us make our presence known to the good lady, shall we? Mr. Holmes, I cannot thank you enough for making the drive so promptly. I was half expecting a note of refusal, and yet here you are in person. You are quite welcome, Miss Stoner. I am delighted to make your acquaintance. I understand Dr. Watson here has been to Stoke Moran once before. Oh, of course, Doctor. Thank you for coming. Your presence at the inquest two years past was a comfort to us all. I'm happy to hear it, my dear. I hope this doesn't take too much time from your practice. Not at all. As Holmes said, it's a pleasure to get away for a while and rekindle your acquaintance. You are too kind. But uh, Holmes says you did not feel safe visiting us at Baker Street. No, Doctor. I confess that I did not. 
Well, London can be a frightening place, but a young lady such as yourself has a guardian. Yes, my stepfather, Dr. Ormsby. Could he not have accompanied you? He... he is the reason I did not feel safe leaving the estate, Doctor. Oh, dear me. You remember the man, Watson? Bah! I do indeed. Unpleasant chap. Oversized and overbearing. Unless he's changed a great deal since I first met him. I am saddened to say that he has not, Doctor. I must wonder why you did not include that in the letter, Miss Stoner. As it is, I almost refused to make the trip, and that additional bit of information could have made the difference. Really, Holmes? I thought you said the money... Never mind that, Watson, never mind. Uh, well, Miss Stoner... I apologise for the mysterious quality of my letter, Mr. Holmes, and you may think me paranoid, but... I've suspected my stepfather of intercepting my communications. Does this Dr. Ormsby have a Christian name? Seymour. Dr. Seymour Ormsby. Sounds distinguished enough, I'd say. And being a doctor of medicine, I should think... Do not be fooled, Mr. Holmes. A scientific education has no bearing upon one's character, I can assure you. No, of course not, Miss Stoner. However... We may be able to use professional courtesy to elicit more information from Dr. Ormsby than might be naturally obtained. Oh. Medical doctors enjoy a strong sense of union and tend to trust one another above and beyond the rest of us commoners. <laughs> For better or worse, of course. Oh, come now, Holmes. I can count the scoundrels who are also practitioners of medicine upon one hand. Don't take offense, my dear fellow. It was not a personal slight. My only point being that there are plenty of scoundrels, as you say, in any profession. But, pray, continue your narrative, Miss Stoner. Yes, of course, Mr. Holmes. My stepfather is the last survivor of one of the oldest Saxon families in England. The family was at one time among the richest. In the last century, the fortune was ruined by waste and foolishness until nothing was left save a few acres of ground and this house, which is itself crushed under a heavy mortgage. My stepfather, desperate to save his family's dwindling legacy, obtained an advance from a relative, which enabled him to take a medical degree, and went out to Calcutta, where he established a large practice. And yet he is back in England... In a fit of anger, he beat his native butler to death and had to flee India to escape capital punishment. Good heavens! What a terrible thing! Although having met the man, I cannot say I am terribly surprised. Then you know him as well as you need to, Doctor. In any case, while in India, Dr. Ormsby married my mother, who'd been recently widowed. My sister Julia and I were twins, and only two years old at the time of my mother's remarriage. She had a considerable sum of money, and this she bequeathed to Dr. Ormsby entirely while we resided with him, with a provision that a certain annual sum should be allowed to each of us in the event of our marriage. Shortly after our return to England, my mother died, killed in a railway accident, Dr. Ormsby then abandoned his attempt to establish himself in practice in London and took us to live here at Stoke Moran. The money which my mother had left was enough for all our wants, and there seemed to be no obstacle to our happiness. And yet, judging from my presence here today, 
Obstacles soon arose. Yes, Mr. Holmes. A terrible change came over my stepfather about this time. He shut himself up in his house and seldom came out save to indulge in ferocious quarrels with whoever might cross his path. A series of disgraceful brawls took place, two of which ended in court, until at last he became the terror of the village and the citizens would run at his approach, for he is a man of immense strength and absolutely uncontrollable in his anger. I say, if this chap's behaviour were that of a dog, it would be put down for being a menace to society. Watson! It is nothing I have not heard before, Mr. Holmes. As a result of his behaviour, my stepfather has no friends at all, save a band of wandering gypsies he gives leave to camp upon the land. In return, he would wander away with them, sometimes for weeks on end. He has a passion also for exotic animals from India, which are sent over to him by a correspondent. And he has, at this moment, a cheetah and a baboon, which wander freely over his grounds and are feared by the villagers almost as much as their master. Oh, for the love of all that is... Watson? I'm sorry, Holmes, but it must be said. The man is a menace and a lunatic. You are not wrong, Doctor. And so, you can imagine that my poor sister Julia and I had no great pleasure in our lives. No servant would stay with us, and for a long time we did all the work of the house. She was but thirty at the time of her death, and yet her hair had already begun to whiten, even as mine has. And so, your sister is dead? Two years ago now, her inquest being the one attended by Dr. Watson. Tragic event. Tragic. And it is of her death that I wish to speak to you. You can understand that, living the life which I have described, we were little likely to see anyone of our own age and position. We had, however, an aunt we were allowed to visit occasionally. Julia went there at Christmas two years ago and met a suitor, to whom she became engaged. And did your stepfather offer any objection to this union? Surprisingly, he did not. But, within a fortnight of the wedding day, the terrible event occurred. <clears throat> Pray continue, Miss Stoner, with all the details you can recall. And don't mind if I close my eyes. I am not sleeping, but rather contemplating deeply. Details will be close to hand, for every event of that dreadful time is seared into my memory. The manor house is very old, with only one wing now inhabited, and the bedrooms are on the ground floor. The first of these is Dr. Ormsby's, the second was my sister's, and the third my own. There is no communication between them, but they all open out into the same corridor. Do I make myself plain? Just so. Proceed. Right. The windows of the three rooms open out upon the lawn... That fatal night, Dr. Ormsby had gone to his room early. Though we knew that he had not retired to rest, for my sister was troubled by the smell of the strong Indian cigars he always smoked. She left her room, therefore, and came into mine, where she sat for some time, talking about her approaching wedding. At eleven o'clock, she rose to leave me, but she paused at the door and looked back. Have you ever heard anyone playing music in the dead of the night? Music? 
Yes, like a flute or whistle. Why, no. But why? Because I have. During the last few nights, about three in the morning, I'm a light sleeper and it has awakened me. I cannot tell where it came from, but perhaps from the next room, perhaps from the lawn. I thought I would ask you whether you had heard it. No, I have not. Perhaps it is those gypsies that stepfather is so fond of. Very likely. And yet, if it were on the lawn, I wonder that you did not hear it also. I have always slept more heavily than you, Julia. Yes. Well, it is of no great consequence. Good night, Helen. Good night, Julia. Everything will be all right. You'll be married soon and free of this place. And then, Mr. Holmes, she smiled back at me, closed my door, and a few moments later I heard her key turn in the lock. Was it your custom to lock yourselves in at night? Always, Mr. Holmes. And why? I think I mentioned to you that the doctor kept a cheetah and a baboon. Mm. We had no feeling of security unless our doors were locked. Understandable, my dear. I would not feel safe either with those beasts galumphing about the premises. Good heavens. You understand perfectly, Doctor. Anyway, I could not sleep that night. A vague feeling of impending misfortune impressed me. It was a wild night. The wind was howling and the rain was beating against the windows. Suddenly, amid the gale, there came a terrified scream... I knew it was my sister's voice. I sprang from my bed and rushed into the corridor. As I opened my door, I heard a low, eerie tune, such as my sister described. And a few moments later, a clanging sound, as if a mass of metal had fallen. As I ran down the passage, my sister's door was unlocked and swung slowly upon its hinges. By the light of the corridor lamp, I saw my sister... Her face white with terror, her hands groping for help, her whole figure swaying to and fro like that of a drunkard. I ran and threw my arms around her, but her knees gave way and she fell to the ground. She writhed as one who was in terrible pain, and her limbs convulsed dreadfully. As I bent over, she spoke to me in a gasping voice. Helen, it... It was the band. The speckled band. She may have said more, but a fresh convulsion seized her and choked her words. I rushed out, calling loudly for my stepfather, and met him hastening from his room. When he reached my sister's side, she was unconscious, and though he poured brandy down her throat and sent for medical aid from the village, all efforts were in vain. And she never regained consciousness? No, Mr. Holmes. She was gone. And was your sister dressed? Uh, No, she was in her nightdress. In her right hand was found the charred stump of a match, and, and in her left, a matchbox. Ah, so she had struck a light when the alarm took place. Yes. That is important. Is it possible someone was in the room with her and caused her violent harm? The coroner investigated carefully, and I am certain he expected signs of violence, given my stepfather's reputation for such, 
but he was unable to find any. Also, the door had been fastened upon the inner side, and the windows were blocked by shutters with iron bars. The walls and floors were solid as well. The chimney is wide, but is barred up by a heavy grate. No, Mr. Holmes. My sister was quite alone when she met her end, and there were no marks of violence upon her. Hmm. What about poison? The doctors examined her for it, but without success. And your sister's allusions to the band, the speckled band, what did you make of that? Sometimes I have thought that it was merely the wild talk of delirium. Hmm. Sometimes that it may have referred to some band of people, perhaps to the gypsies wandering the property, or perhaps the spotted handkerchiefs which so many of them wear over their heads. Hmm. As an explanation, that is far from satisfactory. I fear we are in very deep waters. Please, go on with your narrative. Uh, two years have now passed, and my life has been lonelier than ever until recently. And what has caused this change in your social satisfaction? A month ago, a dear friend for many years has done me the honour to ask my hand in marriage. My stepfather has offered no opposition to the match, and we are to be married in the spring. Congratulations, my dear lady. <laughs> I would think this would be more of a comfort than cause for alarm. And indeed it is, Doctor. However, two days ago, some house repairs were begun, and my bedroom wall has been pierced so that I have had to move into the chamber in which my sister died hmm. and to sleep in the very bed in which she slept. Oh, you poor thing. I say, that sounds positively awful. You can then imagine my terror when, late last night as I lay awake, I suddenly heard the low, eerie tune so described by poor Julia. Good heavens. I sprang up and lit the lamp, but saw nothing. I was too shaken to go to bed again, however, so I dressed, and as soon as it was daylight, I slipped down to the library and wrote you the message, which I sent special delivery. And I am so grateful that you came right away, for I fear time is not on my side. You have done wisely. However... I do regret that you have kept something from me. But, Mr. Holmes, I have told you everything. Ah, but you have not. Here. There, upon your arm, the bruising marks of a brutal grip. He is a hard man, and perhaps he scarcely knows his own strength. I do not think ignorance is one of Dr. Ormsby's failings, dear lady. Nor do I think he is in need or deserving of your protection. <clears throat> and now, would you be so kind as to show us the rooms in question? Of course, Mr. Holmes. Please, follow me. And this window here belongs to the room in which you used to sleep? Yes, Mr. Holmes. The centre one was Julia's, and the one next belongs to Dr. Ormsby. I see. I must confess that I do not see any pressing need to repairs on this wall. Do you, Watson? I do not, Holmes. Granted, I am no stonemason, but I don't believe that... Then we must consider the possibility that it is all an excuse to move the lady from her own room. Now, 
On the other side of this narrow wing runs the corridor from which these three rooms open. There are windows in it, of course. Yes, but very small ones. Too narrow for anyone to pass through. I see. <clears throat> and the rooms appear impregnable from the outside. Well, let us go inside and see what we can deduce. Lead the way, Miss Stoner, if you please. We entered through a side door and found ourselves in the corridor onto which the three bedrooms opened. Holmes refused to examine the third chamber, so we passed at once to the second, in which Miss Stoner was now staying, and in which her sister had met her fate. It was a homely little room, with a low ceiling and a gaping fireplace. A brown chest of drawers stood in one corner, a narrow bed in another, and a dressing table to the left of the window. The walls were of brown, worm-eaten oak, so old and discolored that it may have dated from the original building of the house. Holmes drew one of the chairs into a corner and sat silent, while his eyes traveled round and round and up and down, taking in every detail. That bell pull, hanging by the bed, to where would that communicate? Uh, it, it goes to the housekeeper's room. It appears of a more recent vintage than the other items of the room. Yes, it was only installed a couple of years ago. By your sister's request? No, I never heard of her using it. Indeed, it seems unnecessary to put so nice a bell pull there. You will excuse me while I satisfy my curiosity. <clears throat> Why, it's a dummy. Doesn't it ring, Holmes? Not a single chime. It is not even attached to a wire. You can see that it is fastened to a hook just above that little opening for the ventilator. How the blazes is it supposed to call the help, then? Exactly, Watson. It won't call for anyone. And so, we must consider that perhaps it was never designed to do so. And what a fool a builder must be to open a ventilator into another room, when, with the same trouble, he might have communicated with the outside air. I was told it is quite modern. Modern? Hmm. If that is modern, then I shall stick with my default theory that for progress to be considered as such, it should in some way improve upon an existing circumstance. And now, Miss Stoner, with your permission, we shall carry out our researches into the inner apartment. Dr. Seymour Ormsby's chamber was larger than that of his stepdaughter, but equally plain in its furnishings. A camp bed, a small wooden shelf full of books, an armchair, a plain wooden chair against the wall, a round table and a large iron safe were the principal furnishings. Holmes walked slowly round and examined each with the keenest interest. He stopped before the safe and tapped upon it with his walking stick. What's in there? My stepfather's business papers. Ah, then you've seen inside it. Only some years ago. There isn't a cat in it, for example. <laughs> a cat? Holmes, what a ridiculous thing. Why would you presume there to be a cat living in a safe? Because I have not seen one in the room, and here on top sits a saucer of milk. Milk? How odd. But no, we don't keep a cat. There is a cheetah and a baboon. Ah, yes, of course. And what is a cheetah but a big cat? Still... A saucer of milk would not go far in satisfying its appetite, I dare say. Ah, what is this? 
<sighs> what would you say this is, Watson? It appears to be a leash for a small dog. Certainly too small for either a cheetah or a baboon. Quite so. <laughs> and it appears to be curled in upon itself and made into a loop. <clears throat> I think I have seen enough, Miss Stoner. Now, listen. It is essential that you follow my advice in every respect. Of course, Mr. Holmes. Your life may depend upon it. Then it is as I feared. I am saddened to say that very possibility looms before us. Now, in the first place, both my friend and I must spend the night in your room. What? Oh, I say, Holmes. Surely propriety would dictate... Watson, what are you playing at? Calm yourself and let me finish. I believe that that is the village inn over there. Yes, it is called The Crown. And your windows are visible from there? Certainly. When your stepfather returns, you must confine yourself to your room, complaining of a headache. Into Julia's old room? The same, lest you draw suspicion. When Dr. Ormsby retires for the night, you must open the shutters of your window, undo the hasp, put your lamp there as a signal to us, and then withdraw quietly into the room which you used to occupy. I have no doubt that, in spite of the repairs, you could manage there for one night. Yes, certainly. Excellent. And the rest you shall leave in our hands. But what shall you be doing, Mr. Holmes? I fear... Oh dear, it is my stepfather. He's returned earlier than expected. Please, gentlemen, follow my lead when he enters. He has a terrible temper. <clears throat> okay. Why do I pay these blasted fools a salary if... Uh, what the devil? Who are these men? Stepfather, I... I am Sherlock Holmes, Dr. Ormsby. A pleasure to shake your hand. The pleasure is all yours, sir. Mm. And I'll not shake the hand of any man who enters Stoke Moran without my express permission. Helen, explain yourself. These are friends of mine, that is all. Calling for tea and biscuits. Tea? Then why are you all wandering about the house? I was going to tell... Nonsense. That one there, the one with the moustache, he looks familiar... Have I seen you before, sir? Uh, well, uh, I, uh, I, I must say, um, I, I, I oh, shut uh, up, you uh, rumbling fool! Well, I say that's hardly necessary. Both of you, out! Get out now, or I'll set the animals upon you. Holmes and I had no difficulty engaging a room on the upper floor of the Crown Inn, and from our window we commanded a view of the inhabiting wing of Stoke Moran. Do you know, Watson, I have really some scruples as to taking you tonight. There is a distinct element of danger. Can I be of assistance? Your presence might be invaluable. Then I would like to see you try to stop me from coming along. Watson... You are a prince among men. We may have use of your pistol as well this night. You speak of danger. You have evidently seen more in these rooms than did I, for I saw nothing remarkable save the bell rope, and what purpose that could serve is more than I can imagine. You saw the ventilator? But what harm can there be in that? 
It was so small that a rat could hardly pass through. Well, there is at least a curious coincidence of events. A ventilator is made, a cord is hung, and a lady who sleeps in the bed dies. Odd, to say the least. And the bed itself, it was clamped to the floor. Did you ever see a bed fastened like that before? I have not, Holmes. The lady could not move her bed. It must always be in the same relative position to the ventilator and to the bell pull. Holmes, I have not deduced the evil behind all of this, and yet a shiver has run down my spine. I cannot help but feel something terrible is bound to happen. And you are right to feel so. When a doctor goes wrong, he is the first among criminals, possessing nerve and knowledge. <sighs> but... We shall have horrors enough before the night is over. Now, for goodness sake, let us have a quiet pipe and turn our minds to something more cheerful. While we still can. At about nine o'clock, all was dark in the direction of the manor house. Two more hours passed slowly away, and then, suddenly, just at the stroke of eleven, a single bright light shone outright in front of us. We left the inn and... A moment later, we were out on the dark road, a chill wind blowing in our faces, and only the one yellow light twinkling through the gloom, guiding us on our somber errand. We walked along, cutting through the old park, until we found ourselves on the grounds of Stoke Moran. Holmes, I can scarcely see my hand before my face. And I, Watson. Stay close, lest we be separated, and we shall make it through. Dear God, save us. Whatever was that? That would be the delightful baboon kept on the property. Let us hope that we don't run afoul of the cheetah. Oh, good heavens. I'd forgotten about the wretched things. This Ormsby fellow is one for the books, eh, Holmes? Indeed. And let us hope we can prevent yet another sordid chapter. But now we draw near the house. Ah, the shutters are indeed open for us. Let us remove our shoes for the sake of stealth, shall we? <clears throat> Here, Watson. Through you go. Quiet now. The least sound may prove fatal to our plans. How shall I ever forget that dreadful vigil? I could not hear a sound, not even the drawing of a breath. And yet I knew that my companion sat open-eyed within a few feet of me in the same state of nervous tension in which I was myself. We waited there in absolute darkness, as outside came the occasional cry of a night bird. Far away, we could hear the deep tones of the parish clock as it struck the hours away. Then, as the clock struck three, there was the momentary gleam of a light up in the direction of the ventilator. The light vanished quickly and was replaced by the strong smell of burning oil. Someone in the next room had lit a lantern, I heard a gentle sound of movement, and then all was silent once more. For half an hour, I sat with straining ears. Then suddenly another sound became audible, a very gentle, soothing sound, like that of a small jet of steam escaping from a kettle. As if sprung by the sound, Holmes jumped from the bed, struck a match, and lashed furiously with his cane at the bell pull. Do you see it, Watson? Do you see the evil thing? I see nothing, Holmes. What... Music, Holmes. The music. What does it mean, Holmes? It means that it is all over, 
And perhaps, after all, it is for the best. Have your pistol at the ready, Watson. For now we shall enter Dr. Ormsby's room. Holmes, there, on the floor, the doctor. Yes, Watson. And look there, around his head. The speckled band. It is a cobra that gathers itself, Watson. Watch yourself. No, you don't. Holmes, I must say, these adventures of yours become more and more on the outside. Before long, people will stop believing when I tell them about them. Well, you could always stop telling people about them, my dear Watson. (laughs) And rob you of the publicity. I could never do that. But still, it was an impressive showing, Holmes. You had it figured out to the letter immediately. Not exactly, my dear fellow. I had, in fact, come to an entirely erroneous conclusion. The presence of the gypsies and the use of the word band were sufficient to put me upon an entirely wrong scent. Fortunately for Miss Stoker's life, I reconsidered my position once it became clear to me that whatever danger threatened an occupant of the room could not come either from the window or the door. Ah, the celebrated deductive reasoning. Elementary, my dear Watson. My attention was speedily drawn to the ventilator and the bell rope, which hung down to the bed. The discovery that this was a dummy and that the bed was clamped to the floor instantly gave rise to the suspicion that the rope was there as a bridge for something passing through the hole and coming to the bed, which brought to mind the idea of a snake. And couple that with the fact that the doctor was furnished with a supply of creatures from India. Very good, Watson. Your own deductive powers appear to be on the rise. Yes, you are quite right. And the idea of using a form of poison which could not be discovered by any current chemical test is exactly what would occur to a clever and ruthless man who had Eastern training, not to mention the speed at which such a poison would take effect. It would be a sharp-eyed coroner indeed who could distinguish the two little punctures which would show where the poison fangs had done their work. Oh dear, I feel now that I should have thought to check for that, Holmes. After all, I was there for the inquest. Nonsense, Watson. You had no reason to think of such a thing. You cannot fault yourself for not taking advantage of knowledge which you did not then possess. Oh, I suppose you're right, Holmes. And that dreadful music we heard? Ah, yes. Of course, he must recall the snake. He had trained the creature, likely through the use of the milk, to return when summoned. He would put it through this ventilator at the hour that he thought best, with the certainty that it would crawl down the rope and land on the bed. It might or might not bite the occupant. Perhaps she might escape every night for a week. But sooner or later... She must fall a victim. Beastly, absolutely wicked. Just as you say, Watson. I shudder at the mind that could conceive and the conscience that could execute. But in any case, an inspection of the doctor's room, which revealed the safe, the saucer of milk, and the loop in the leash, was enough to dispel any doubts. The metallic clang heard by Miss Stoner was obviously caused by her stepfather hastily closing the door of his safe upon its terrible occupant. And then, that dreadful night, I heard the creature hiss, 
and I instantly lit the light and attacked it. And drove it back through the ventilator. Which caused it to turn upon its master at the other side. Some of the blows of my walking stick roused its temper, so it flew upon the first person it saw. In this way, I am at least indirectly responsible for Dr. Seymour Ormsby's death. But I cannot say that it is likely to weigh very heavily upon my conscience. The Speckled Band, an LRT media production, is based upon the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle story of the same name and was adapted by Craig Hart. The Speckled Band was produced and directed by Craig Hart. Editing and sound design were by Craig Hart. The musical score was composed by Drew A. Forbes. The musical theme was composed by John Campbell. The cast includes R.J. Bailey as Sherlock Holmes, A.W. Miller as Dr. Watson, Stephanie Nimitt-Parker as Helen Stoner, Mike Carnes as Dr. Seymour Ormsby, and Nicole Swanson as Julia. Thank you for listening.